should adolescents vote? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Daniel Weinstock. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Daniel Weinstock. Daniel is Professor, Associate Dean of Research, and Catherine A. Pearson Chair in Civil Society and Public Policy in the Faculties of Law and of Arts at McGill University. Daniel's research interests have spanned widely across a wide range of topics in contemporary moral and political philosophy, from the just management of ethno-cultural and religious diversity in modern liberal democracies to state policy with respect to children, families, and educational institutions. His main research interests more specifically at present have to do with the problem of health, equity, and with issues of justice and inclusion as they arise in the organization of modern societies. Daniel, welcome to The Curious Task. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on. So we base each episode on a theme, you know, and a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today that's driving the episode is, should adolescents vote? And right off the bat, I think it's important to explore some distinctions and then we'll drill down into a couple of other things. So I'll come back to this probably as we go along and a few times, uh, you know, as we go along and at the end of the chat as well. But it's actually toward the end of your essay uh, that I read in preparation for our conversation today that you make a careful uh, distinction between children and adolescents. So right. even though that's at the end of the essay, I want to put the beginning of the episode just right off the bat. Why is that important to, as, as we're framing our conversation today? Well, I think it's important because, um, well, for a couple of reasons. I think that there is a question of uh, political feasibility that I want to put right out there at the outset. Um, I think that it is a moral imperative uh, that uh, my country, your country, lower the voting age. Um, but of course, um, I think that there are limits to what people would countenance in terms of how low to go. Mm. So I think to say to people, look, when kids enter high school, they're at a level of intellectual maturity that may not uh, allow them to do, uh, you know, theoretical physics at a high level, um, but certainly uh, that where they are able to consider at a certain level of abstraction, which may be different from the kind of in the weeds uh, discussion of macroeconomic theory that uh, maybe 5% of the population is able to engage in, right. are able to uh, grasp um, the, the, the broad lines of political debate sufficiently um, to be involved in, in political activity and indeed in what is the central, at least symbolically, political uh, activity of of a democracy, which is uh, voting. Now, I think that there are interesting arguments uh, that could be made uh, to go even lower than that, to uh, uh, suggest that even children... Um, you know, one of the things that has become a constant in a lot of the sort of economic analysis of voting behavior is that it's actually irrational to vote because in a mass democracy, um, your vote is going to weigh so little Right, um, absent the odd aberrant case, your weight is going uh, is going to uh, count for so little that the effort that it takes you to get to the voting pool station is probably um, of more disvalue than the value that you will get from casting your one individual vote. Right. So, to some degree, I mean, there's th that's kind of irrefutable if you just look at the numbers. But I think that there's a positive spin that we could give to that, which is to say. If, in a sense, it doesn't matter that much, then why not um, uh, accrue the socialization benefits that come from getting kids at a very young age um, to get used to the idea that every 
two years, every four years, depending on the jurisdiction, we engage in this ritual, which is to think about uh, these issues and to go to vote. There might be more benefits socially from having kids uh, at a younger age uh, place an X next to a name, even if they have a very foggy notion of what the issues are, because it makes them into political animals uh, in a way which um, might become might make them better voters and citizens later on in life if, as it were, there's been a habituation uh, into the act of voting. Now, I think that argument can be made, but I think that it would sink the overall case because, right, I see. Okay. Um, you know, it, people would just say, you know, well, isn't that just crazy? Right. Uh, I don't think it's crazy. I don't think, I, th- I think that um, I would stand by that socialization argument, even in the case of children who are able to read. But I think that once you get down to adolescence, um, I think that... Just looking around us in a society like yours or in Canada, um, there's a a definite beginning of political awareness and one that would probably be um, uh, accentuated by uh, having a right to vote uh, lower uh, at a younger age, which would probably change the way in which we educate children, probably change the way in which uh, schools, high schools are organized um, and would make them... I mean, I think even in their present state, uh, adolescents, when they enter high school, have a sense of uh, political issues that is usually greater than we give them credit for. But were we to give them the responsibility for voting, a lot of other things would follow in the way we organize education, in the way we organize the way that we interact with them, um, that would make them even more competent voters than they are in their present state, that state being one in which uh, at 12 or 13 year old, years old, you're years away from prospective voting. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, um, there's a pragmatic reason, um, which is that, uh, you know, when one makes philosophical arguments, one has to be, have at least uh, political feasibility, um, sort of looking at it out of the corner of uh, one's eye. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is a difference between um, the kind of, uh, consciousness of political issues that one gets when one reaches, and you know, these are all partially socially constructed categories, right? The fact right. that at 12 or 13, kids are becoming to have a sense of, uh, I don't know, environmental issues, issues around inequality and, and, and such has to do not so much with anything ontological about that age, more about the way that we treat them, the fact that you go from uh, elementary school to high school, for example, or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but I think that that distinction is important because of, um, you know, the, the point at which one can ascribe a sufficient level of awareness of political issues to children to make them into plausible voters for uh, the general population. Mm-hmm. No, I think that was a great overview, and there's lots to get into there, and I have some bunch of follow-up questions, of course, sure. but but just to, to wrap up that one point there, just to make sure uh, I get your perspective on it. So, so it is to say, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that you do think the, arg- the same, these types of arguments can be extended to both very young folks, children, for example, and adolescents. You think the whole, that whole discussion can happen, but you're saying it's a little more on the, on the feasibility side, and it's a, both up from a feasible feasibility perspective, and there are probably some nuances that are important, that it is still important to make a distinction between children and adolescents. It's a somewhat different argument, I think, for children and for adolescents. Okay. Uh, I think that uh, it would be... a stretch to say that a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old who can read, but, you know, who can't be expected to understand uh, uh, political debates. I think the socialization dimension that I mentioned earlier is still one that obtains even in the case of children. And I have an argument which I make somewhere else, uh, which is half tongue-in-cheek and half serious, which is that, um, you know, all you have to assume is that uh, even uninformed votes will distribute 
across the political spectrum in such a way that they probably wouldn't make that much of a difference. Uh, but we would still get the socialization benefit. I think the argument for adolescence is a bit stronger because it's not just that we would get the socialization benefit of getting people used at a very young age to participating mm -hmm. in the ritual of political um, activity in a democracy, but also that, um, you know, I think that they have the cognitive wherewithal, at least as much as the average voter, right, um, to, again... Different voters, even from 18 years old on, have different cognitive skill sets that make it the case that when they consider who to vote for, they will be looking at the issues with a greater or lesser, lesser um, sense of what the specificity of policy debates are. Mm -hmm. um, some people will, will respond to very general moral ideas. Others will really be looking into the details and fine print of policy proposals. And I think that to, to, to fold adolescents into the mix with their perhaps different uh, ways of looking at things would just add to a variety of perspectives on voting that is already there in the adult population. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be qualitatively changing uh, the fact that, uh, look, uh, the average voter um, doesn't know all that much about the issues that they're voting on. There's studies upon studies upon studies of about voter ignorance that show that uh, uh, you know, people don't spend a lot of time informing themselves about the, the intricacies of macroeconomic policy or foreign policy or even environmental policy. Um, and that to some degree, it's rational for them not to, because mm -hmm. given the weight that their vote will have, it's a big investment to make, mm -hmm. to, unless one has a professional interest like us academics do, right. um, to spend a lot of time thinking about things upon which one won't have much of an influence. And so people have different cognitive profiles that they bring to the task of voting, some less informed, some more informed, some based on generalities, others perhaps on greater specificities. And I think that bringing adolescents into the mix would, um, would, would add to the variety of cognitive postures that people have towards uh, voting, but it wouldn't introduce something that isn't already there, namely a high sort of um, range of differences with respect to uh, level of knowledge, level of uh, you know factual knowledge, level of theoretical sophistication with respect to some of the issues that are being debated. Right, that makes a lot of sense. And and to further explore that though, like I think you know someone listening to you here either on this podcast or listening to this argument more generally might have sort of like um I guess say like a sort of a knee jerk reaction or instinctual reaction like uh, this is still a bad idea for whatever reasons, but letting younger people vote, but. I think like one thing you did in, in, in the paper I read in preparation for this episode is is first you kind of reset everything and talk about and explore, if you're going to do the philosophical argument proper, the reasons people generally will exclude others from voting. You, generally, these are two categories you say, categorical and consequential. Right. I'm going to get into a few more specifics about children and so on and so forth in a second, but can, can, let's walk through sort of the 101 on all that then. Like when we're thinking of anyone What's right. this distinction between categorical and consequential right. so, reasoning? So there's certain people, and it's it's interesting that different countries think about the categorical uh, set in, in quite different ways. So um, uh, there are a lot of people who reside in Montreal right now um, who are working and paying taxes but who aren't citizens, right? Mm. Now, we may think that if we were allowed them to allow them to vote, McGill University, where we're sitting, is probably full of uh, my colleagues from all sorts of different countries who are uh, brilliant and who haven't yet achieved uh, citizenship, maybe never will. You know, they become landed immigrants and never apply for citizenship. Now, we may think that, um, you know, it would add to the quality of the vote uh, were they to be able to vote as residents, right? Mm -hmm. But we think that they're the wrong kind of 
person, as it were, right? They, um, we, you need to be a citizen, right, uh, for whatever reason. Now, it's interesting that around the world, access to citizenship and even the requirements of citizenship um, comes down differently on different voting. Uh, so, for example, as a Canadian, um, I lived in the UK for four years as a graduate student. And to my surprise, I found out uh, when I got there that I was allowed to vote in um, local elections, but not in national elections. Hmm. So there's something about being a member of the Commonwealth, temporarily residing uh, in the UK that according to whatever underlying philosophy underpins the UK's sense of, you know, what what attributes you have uh, to be a voter, um, uh, you know, that, that, that I possessed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and here those people would be excluded. So um, those kinds of exclusions, so obviously... Um, you know, another another category would be um, expats. So um, you might not expect this from my accent, but I'm actually also a French citizen. I have dual citizenship in hmm. Canada and in France. And as a French citizen, although I haven't resided in France since 1980, um, hmm. I still get to vote in French elections. And right, I will okay. get to vote in French elections until I die. Um, other countries will exclude expats after a certain amount of time, my wife, who's British, uh, her vote, her right to vote uh, lapsed after seven years of not residing in the UK. So these are again, there's no um, there's no sense of whether it would be better or worse for the overall results that one would get uh, in an election were one to allow these types of people to vote or not. This is based on categorical determinations of the type of people who have the status. Um, that uh, that should allow them to vote. You know, there are other arguments that have been made in the history of voting where the more consequentialist considerations come into play. So, for example, uh, one of the arguments that is often made about children is that, uh, well, um, I mean, I don't know how people come to feel this way. They obviously have never met my kids. Uh, that if uh, children have the right to vote, they just vote like their parents. Their parents would tell them right. uh, how to vote. And it would just give people who have kids or who have several kids, more of a political influence, which would defy the principle of political equality. Um, so interestingly, that was also the argument that was used until the enfranchisement of women to exclude women, uh, right. where the argument was, well, they'll just ask their husbands uh, who they should vote for and, and follow follow suit. It was also historically the argument that... Um, was made by very influential philosophers in our tradition, Immanuel Kant amongst them, for why the non-propertied classes uh, should not be allowed to vote. The idea being that their dependency upon um, uh, people who um, who employ them, right, um, uh, would make it the case that they would be they would not exercise their voting judgment autonomously, uh, and therefore they would be giving more weight, say, to the landowner on whose land they live or to the employer owning the means of production under which they labor. Mm-hmm. So um, these arguments have been used, uh, you know, we're, we're maybe moving a little bit forward, in, but the, the kinds of arguments that one often hears about uh, why children should not be allowed to vote, well, look, you know, they'll just be, um, they don't have any independent political judgment, they'll just be um, following, following their parents' uh, lead, um, is one that one, one has found um, throughout the history of uh, of uh, political philosophy to exclude people who we now realize, you know, it was a stain on our, um, you know, on our polities mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, we excluded them. W- women only got the right to vote in this country 
and I don't have the exact date uh, right in front of me, but uh, you know, after the Second World War, right. and we no longer think that that was something that even had the remote, the remotest justification. Mm-hmm. I think there will come a time when uh, you know we view the exclusion of adolescents as being on the same order. After all, um, a lot of the political decisions that we make have the greatest impact on. Um, the people who have to live for, with them the longest, right? right? Decisions, I'm going to be 60 in 10 days. Uh, you know, I hope that I've got another, you know. Happy early birthday. Thank you. <laughs> I hope that I have another, you know, 25 years or so to, to go. But, you know, my youngest child who just turned 18, well, she's turning 19 now. But, uh, you know, if I were, you know, somebody voting in a, in a way that reflected my stage of life, uh, you know, there's a natural bias that makes it the case that perhaps we don't think spontaneously about 60 or 70 years down the line right. if we know that we're not going to be there. And so, um, you know, there there is something... Um, um, or even about specific issues like old age pensions or whatever else, sure, right? Sure, sure. If you look at something like healthcare, which is an area of policy that I spent some time looking at, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's quite obvious that, um, you know, the, uh, the health problems of... Um, of um, you know, powerful middle-aged white men get a disproportionate amount of uh, funding, and policies are geared towards them. And the interests of children are often neglected. So mm-hmm. um, I do think that you know there will come a time when we will realize that we were disenfranchising people whose interests were very much in play uh, in the decisions that we made. Um, you know, um, there are studies that suggest that if the voting age um, had been lowered to 16 um, for the Brexit referendum, that Brexit would not have gone through. Uh, now, when you think about it, um, the people who will be most impacted by Brexit are the people who are 16, 17, 18 right now. You right. Know, the, the pensioners who, uh, uh, whose careers are over and whose uh, uh, you know, life expectancy is probably uh, you know, not that great, uh, will not live with the consequences of Brexit to the same degree that uh, the 15, 16, 17-year-olds will. So again, to repeat myself, I do think there will come a time when, uh, A, we will realize, you know, we've kind of been making the same kind of arguments about adolescence that we were making about uh, poor people, um, about women, uh, and, uh, you know, the pattern here that we ought to become aware of, and also that, um, you know, these these omissions are not uh, innocent in terms of their impacts. They mm-hmm. they have real impacts on the way in which policy is, is formed. Uh, and, you know, there's a basic principle... You know, one of the things that that when one writes a paper about something, the first thing one does when it's published is think about how one would write it differently. Right. Uh, when you know, and uh, I'm actually writing another paper now where I deal with some of the objections. One of the first things you have to think about is who has the burden of proof, right? Um, now you would think that the 18 year old threshold is so well established that the burden of proof falls to a person like me who would change it. Um, now, in fact, the 18-year-old threshold is a fair, fairly recent arrival, uh, both in your country and in mine. It was 21 until, uh, you know, not that long ago. So we have already uh, realized uh, that um, there were reasons to lower the age from what it was to what it is today. No reason to think that that argument can't continue to... Um, uh, to uh, to apply, um, you know, I think that there's a very uh, sort of fundamental uh, principle in uh, liberal political thought. And when I use the word liberal, I mean it from, you know, sort of 
quasi-libertarian all the way to sort of Rawlsian liberal yep. uh, people, which is that essentially uh, the exercise of political authority has to be uh, justified on the basis of some um, form of consent. Now, what that consent actually means is a fraught question in the history of uh, political philosophy, obviously. Right. Um, but, um, you know... Uh, if that's the case, that it means that any ex the, the burden of proof, you know, the, the prima facie um, implication of that principle is everybody in, right? Mm -hmm. And then we may have reason to exclude certain categories of persons, right? Um, for either you know consequential or or uh, or categorical reasons. You know, mm -hmm. we want citizenship is something through which we think that a person marks their commitment to a society, you know, so if somebody immigrates here and, um, you know, taking out citizenship uh, when they're eligible for it is a way of them to mark the kind of commitment that we think mm. uh, warrants their uh, being able to participate fully in the affairs of the state before that maybe, uh, you know, they're one foot in, one foot out. Um, I'm not sure about that argument, but you can see the kind of argument. But the basic idea is that um, uh, the burden of proof, I think, lies on the shoulders within a liberal dispensation mm -hmm. of those who would exclude. Um, and um, it's not for, as it were, uh, the people who are in favor of in inclusion mm -hmm. to justify themselves to those who would exclude, but I think the reverse. And one of the things that the paper does is it just considers a lot of the arguments that get made against the enfranchisement of adolescents and just shows that... Um, well, they're not very good arguments. We've already talked a little bit about one of those categories, which is influence. They, they're, children, adolescents would be um, influenced by their um, parents right. to a greater degree. Now, I mean, aside from the fact that uh, that argument has been used in politically obnoxious ways in history, it's also the fact that influence is rampant in any political society. Mm -hmm. uh, people listen to their religious leaders, right. you know, um, thinking about, you know, the people listen to their spiritual leaders, religious leaders, uh, sometimes their parents, you right. know. Right. Exactly. Uh, Non-children, non-adolescents might still, might still listen to their You know, parents, the idea, right? the vision, Rousseau, Rousseau had this picture in the social contract of people, you know, he actually thought that um, we shouldn't deliberate with one another before we vote. Because if we deliberate, what might happen is, you know, the more rhetorically um, uh, proficient amongst us may mm -hmm seduce others right. into so one might get persuaded rather right. than reasoned we, that's right exactly right. exactly so he thought that we all should be considering the issues kind of in this monologic hmm. uh sort of self-contained way um and that only then would we get a sense of what the general will is which is kind of a paradoxical view you know later political philosophy has tended to think on the contrary that deliberation is required right mm -hmm. uh but you know i think there is something to the rousseauian idea that um Deliberation, when it works well, is about the force of the better argument. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, it's often about the rhetorically able, uh, you know, persuading or sometimes even manipulating, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the more influenceable, if that's a word. Um, but the point is, uh, again, you know, one of, one of the things that we have to be careful for about in political philosophy is that when we make an argument that excludes someone and not be on the basis of a criterion, that if we were to apply it systematically wouldn't end up ruling out 
you know, 50% of the rest of the population, right? So right. Um, only people who are making their decisions in a completely autonomous sort of Rousseauian way uh, should get to vote according to this criterion. Well, you know, that would rule out uh, quite a lot of people who, again, because, you know, democracy takes a lot of time, don't have the time to think about the issues and will ask their pastor, their rabbi, their whatever, um, hey, you know, who are you going to vote for? You know, I uh, haven't really thought about the issues. It's kind of a normal part of everyday uh, democracy. I mean, the big, the elephant in the room, the room which is is political competence, right? Uh, the argument that children lack either the cognitive skills, the factual basis, um, or something about impulse control. You know, uh, that would um, that you know we we would want people to have in order to be uh, voters. We want them to know at least a little bit about basic facts about the economy, you say, before they vote on economic policy. Um, or the basic structure of government. The basic structure of government. Right. Now, um, you know, there, there are people in the U.S. and Canada, Ilya Soman and others who who um, have just canvassed the, the experimental and sort of, you know, the empirical literature uh, and have shown that people actually don't know very much. It's actually stunning how little people know about the basic facts, basic facts about the organization mm-hmm, of government, mm-hmm. uh, basic facts about the organization of a modern uh, economy. Um, and of course, we still let them vote. Now, right. uh, Jason Brennan, who wrote a, bet, a, a philosophical bestseller a few years ago, uh, Against Democracy, mm-hmm. um, has this sort of cheeky su- suggestion that we should actually reject democracy in favor of something that he calls, or that gets called in, in the literature, epistocracy. Right. Uh, now, in his view, I mean, he, he tends to oversell the argument against it. It sounds, it sounds worse than it is when you actually get down to the fine print. But it, you know, the idea is not to just have the most educated vote, but to rule out the people who are perhaps the least educated. You know, there'd be a kind of a very low threshold below which we'd say, look, you know, you really have no business um, weighing in on the issues that you haven't given any thought to. Anyway, so there's a, there's a big literature that suggests that if we were to make um, just the possession of a certain minimal set of facts a kind of requisite for voting, we'd be excluding a lot of adult people. Right. Um, and so, again... Um, you know uh, the, the 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 problem with a lot of arguments that exclude uh, adolescents is if, if if they were to be applied thoroughgoingly, we would end up um, with an argument that cut far too deeply mm-hmm. and would end up serving a justification to disenfranchise uh, a lot of adults. One of the things that we don't talk about very much, we don't seem to mind um, excluding the very young from voting. Um, but we don't talk uh, very much about uh, disenfranchising people who suffer cognitive de- decline at the end of life. Mm-hmm. That's a good, that's a really good point, right? And uh, you know, um, if we are again to bite the bullet of uh, political competence and say we just want people who have a requisite level of competence to be able to vote, then we'd have to look at that end of the spectrum as well, right? Well, I mean, uh, that's a really good point, right? I mean, like. Like one can picture, like you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to be funny. I'm being serious. Like you know, on the one hand, you might have a child who's 10 years old. On the other hand, if if you're literally wheeling grandma who's in cognitive decline to the polling station, I mean, like it, there, there's obviously some re- re- things that are similar in both situations. And there's some, about there's ability, some very, right? I mean, you know, uh, again, this is some, isn't something that I, that I can report on with authority, but there's some very distasteful accounts that are often given of what happens in like retirement homes when mm. people who are clearly in cognitive decline right. are talk about influence. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, being manipulated into voting in one way or another by people who know very well that they're dealing with people who no longer are as cognitively able as they might other, uh, otherwise have been. But the general point is, it seems that whenever somebody 
trundles out an argument for why uh, adolescents should be excluded. Um, they're they're too they're too readily influenced. Um, uh, they don't know enough. The emergence of a new radical voting bloc, right. for example. Yeah. Uh, then we end up, um, you know, with an argument that um, that is quite corrosive to the very idea of democracy. I mean, the whole idea of democracy is we take voters once we've made those categorical um, distinctions, which are more kind of moral than consequential arguments you know, a citizen, what is a citizen mm-hmm. who, who gets the right to vote, then we kind of take elector, we kind of take voters warts and all. Uh, and, you know, um, maybe we think that um, in a mass society with millions and millions of voters, um, different people's biases will correct for one another. That, uh, you know, there's an argument that is as old as Aristotle uh, and that finds its way into uh, even recent... Um, uh, writings by people like John Elster and Helen Landemore of the wisdom of the crowds, right? That there's something about taking many, many people with all kinds of cognitive profiles, each one of which taken individually would introduce unacceptable bias into a decision. But you put all of those into the mix and they kind of magically or mm-hmm. not so magically in ways that sometimes modeled um, not so much cancel each other out as compensate for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 an ideal world is perhaps one in which everybody went to the voting booth absent of any kind of bias or cognitive uh, particularities or something like that. Right. But the second best may be, if we can't do that, then have as many of those in as possible um, so that you're not getting the, the tyranny of one particular set of biases, uh, but, you know, getting all of them to express themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I uh, think that when, you know, when people do... Um, uh, experiments with voting in schools, for example, where they'll organize, where they'll organize sort of mock elections in high schools. There's no, um, you know, there's no doubt that there's a, it's not a perfect mapping of, uh, you know, high school population onto the general population. But if you took any subgroup of the population, that would be true. The population of Montreal, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is not a perfect map. If you isolate the population of Montreal, it's not a perfect mapping onto the population of uh, of Quebec. You know, different subgroups have different uh, inclinations. To take an example from my own experience, um, the um, French expatriate population, uh, of which I'm a member, uh, in North America almost completely uh, excludes the far right from its electoral purview. So uh, the Rassemblement National, which is the Le Pen movement, uh, gets barely, uh, you know, gets a small fraction of the votes, whereas they're now the second voting force in in France. Now, you know, so so there's no doubt that just as was the case when women got the right to vote, just as was the case probably when we went from 21 to 18, um, by bringing a new population into the vote, you probably do make a change to um, what the outcomes of the election will be. But first of all, that's just kind of normal because you're bringing in just another legitimate perspective onto the issues. Mm. But again, I think there's no reason to think that the extreme of adolescents voting en bloc, you know, that they would, you know, whatever, however many hundreds of thousands of adolescents, people would be voted to the voting rolls in Canada, were we to bring in 16-year-olds. There's no reason to think that um, they would be voting en bloc in such a way as to, you know, completely throw an election from one side to uh, the other. I go back to the point that I was making earlier, which is that um, 
if as the economics and sort of, you know, uh, rational choice uh, uh, vision of voting is correct, which is that it's in terms of cost benefit, mm-hmm. kind of an irrational activity to be engaging right. in. Well, in a way, let's use that fact to our advantage by saying, you know, uh, again, uh, we may be making better citizens by by getting um, children and adolescents used to participating at an earlier age, without actually generating too much of a of an impact. Right. Uh, so it's in other arguably win win. Right. In other words, some folks spend so much time explaining how you know, in, in their own arguments that this, this exercise of the one vote or someone voting is kind of useless to begin with, yeah. then you're basically saying, then, then what would be the harm over here? Then there are, in fact, from your perspective might be all these other benefits we're missing Not out on, on benefits. Exactly. Okay. I mean, there's something kind of strange when you think about it, of telling an 18 year old who has, who has done quite a bit of living, right? By the time you're 18, you've probably had a, maybe a summer job. Uh, you've maybe had a, you know, uh, boyfriend or girlfriend and a bunch and, of milestones first car first set of taxes off your paycheck whatever right? whatever yeah, yeah a whole bunch of stuff but you haven't done this thing yet you haven't voted mm. and when you turn 18 we sort of turn on a switch and say okay now you have to do this other thing uh, about which you might have not have given very much thought mm-hmm. because the incentives uh prior to turning 18 um are, you know you may be paying more attention to thinking about which car you ought to get uh or something like that than mm-hmm. about which candidate you ought to vote for and in a way that's kind of um it's kind of strange i mean think about something like criminal liability right um now the age at which someone is considered to be um an adult from the point of view of criminal liability or civil <coughs> civil liability is varies greatly and uh, often decisions are made about individual cases whether mm. this person should be treated as an adult or not but there's no question that from the age of about 16 um, you know you're far more likely to be treated as an adult from the point of view of civil liability from the point of view of criminal liability mm-hmm. uh, than you are as a child right and actually in fact that does happen when people get tried as an adult for instance of in some course. jurisdictions they're, they're, they're 16 or 17 yeah uh, and so um you know they're they're being they're being subjected to all kinds of policies already as if they were adults. Medical decision-making, and I think this is something that is a progress, uh, you know, a 16-year-old in this jurisdiction, I don't know, I don't know how it works in the U.S., but uh, can get um, uh, birth, birth control um, uh, without the consent of their parents, right? They mm-hmm. are considered to be um, a mature minor uh, with the right to, amongst other things, medical confidentiality from mm-hmm. their healthcare provider. Right. So we're already treating um, adolescents as responsible persons with respect to a whole range of um, aspects of their lives, um, which is a good thing to have done because, again, adolescents will have done quite a bit of living by the time they get to 18 standardly. And yet this one aspect of their life which is related to all the others because right. these other parts of their lives are governed by policies or which they, until they turn 18, have no say. Um, you know, they, we've already admitted them es- essentially into adulthood in all these other respects. So all of a sudden, this 18-year-old benchmark, which seems, because we're used to it, so intuitive that we barely think about it, kind of starts seeming odd. Right. I would agree. And actually, I think that's a good place to hold us. I have some follow-up questions, but we do need to take our break. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Daniel Weinstock today. (music) 
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Rosa Pajarello, Danny Leroy, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Daniel Weinstock today. So, Daniel, I think the first half was great. We covered a lot. I did stop us. We were in the middle of a train of thought. We were on a great roll. Uh, but I just want to jump back in maybe from this angle then, too. That so, so, first thing I wanted to do is just to kind of sum up a bit of our first half, which is like, so to be very clear, it's not that you're saying that some of the arguments, for instance, against either adolescents or children voting or being incorporated into the process to some degree, that they themselves are just on the face of it wrong or bad or whatever else or don't hold water. It's the fact that if one were to take them seriously, they would need to start extending them to other places where they naturally might apply. Like we talked about like, you know, older folks, for instance, so on and so forth. Is that a fair summary? It's a, it's a, it's a fair summary. And, and what the conclusion of that is, is that, um, you know, our kind of underlying sometimes unspoken ethics of democracy and of, you know, who gets to vote uh, is not essentially a sort of capacity based um, uh, notion. You know, we, as I said before, um, there's something about our democracy that accepts that we take voters warts and all. And, you know, the empirical literature suggests that uh, whether in your country or in this one, pretty much all over, there are a lot of warts in mm. terms of people's ability to uh, give even a very primary account of any of the big issues that they have to vote on, or at least the, and even the system of government mm-hmm. within which they're doing that voting. Mm-hmm. And so, so let's talk a bit more about like, I don't want to say the how, but that's sort of the general yeah. umbrella I'll put it in. Because, you know, some people who might agree with you might say that, for example, giving someone, um, you know, uh, at the age of 16 or 14 or, or whatever else, just the same quote unquote rights or same um, access to the process is, uh, is, 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 is too much, too fast, whatever. So, right. for instance, some look into this, like this idea of this gradualist approach. You know, for instance, I think in your paper, you outline someone that at a certain age, you get one seventh of a vote and yeah. you collect sevenths until you get a whole vote. Yeah. Um, others, you know, kind of actually already would argue that some of the system in certain ways, like let's say uh, licensing for cars is sort of already based on that type of idea that you can do certain things with your car license at 16, 17, then you get more fuller uh, driving licensing rights later, for instance. So there's already some logic uh, elsewhere in the legal regimes that many people live under with this gradualist approach. Um, what do you think about that when it comes to this idea? I, I'm not talking about, from a, I should be clear to listeners and to you as well. Yeah. I'm not talking about from a, a, a political feasibility perspective, because obviously, um, I'm assuming someone from your position would rather take, for, like like many of us would, something rather than nothing when it comes sure. to heading towards the right direction. But I'm saying sure. just the idea itself. Do you think it's valid? So um, I can I can see why. So I think that I think that there's certain things that um, it's okay to um, to uh, exclude um, children from where the stakes are very high. We don't want 12 year olds uh, being able to they make contracts right right um because the the, the stakes are, are 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 too high and there there may be something about their understanding of the implications of a of a decision that they're making and signing their name to and a you know binding contract that we do want to protect them from um 
you know, in a way, there's something sort of paradoxical about my position, which which is, you know, to repeat one of the underlying themes, which is that in a mass democracy of millions and millions of people, right, individual votes don't matter all that much. And so it's not as if, um, uh, a, a, you know, an adolescent or, a, you know, a young adolescent or an older adolescent who casts a vote in a way which they may later say regret, right? Mm. Um, um it's not as if it, as it were, matters all that much from the point of view of the effect that it will have. Mm-hmm. It matters perhaps from the point of view, again, of the kind of maturation and habituation that we um, uh, place our children mm-hmm. within, which I think arguably could make them into better citizens down the road. So I would say that the gra- I do subscribe to a certain, a certain uh, degree of gradualism in the sense that I think that there are certain things that um, it makes sense to wait uh to wait longer, right? When this, when when we're talking about things where the marriage, right, right, um, you know, uh, and even medical decision making. Mm-hmm. So um, I do subscribe to um, a certain gradualism in the sense that I think that if you look at the whole range of activities of human life, where uh, one might think of using age as uh, a sort of gatekeeping mechanism. Mm-hmm. There are certain things where it makes perfect sense to wait longer, uh, where there are, for example, really good reasons to, uh, you know, there's certain physical, um, you know, maybe driving a car, you know, you need a certain amount of physical strength or something like that mm-hmm. in order to, to do certain maneuvers. And, and so, you know, you don't want people doing it before they're 16. Mm-hmm. There are things where uh, the stakes of one's decision on one's life are such that uh, one doesn't want uh, you know, a twelve-year-old to be making life-altering decisions, sure. like with, or being uh, contract marriage, right. you know, joining the military at six years old, right. for example. Exactly. But again, you know, there's something about, uh, and you know, this may seem paradoxical, but there's something about the fact that uh, you know we're one amongst uh, you know millions that makes it the case that you know the vote is not something that, in a way, is as consequential for the individual making the vote mm-hmm. as, um, after all, they'll be making a vote from within a range of. Uh, you know, of of possibilities of possible right. candidates that is fit. And, and you right? make this point in the paper. Actually, right. I think we should, we can actually step into that now. Which is, and it's I found it was a very good point. It's it's something that's sort of obvious and underlying the surface. But when you point it out, as like many good ideas, like it's a sort of like, oh, well, makes sense. Like that's a the point about you know a set of choices that are ultimately they are voting for representatives in many right. cases that we don't referendum everything. So that's I think a very important dimension. And you know, too, the, right? arguably within a system like ours, it's not like admitting uh, adolescents into the vote would radically alter. The uh, the supply, as it were, there'd right. still be Democrats and Republicans, or, or the and, incentives on right on yeah. representatives yeah. too. And so, one of the things where I do think that gradualism makes sense is, uh, you know, I think that um, age limits on the holding of office make perfect sense. Um, you know, it might seem paradoxical again to say, well, if you get to vote, you should be able to hold office. No, I think that uh, you know, uh, again, if you look at what it implies in terms of cognitive and uh, emotional and uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, there's great differences. You know, mm-hmm. so in your country, uh, the president has to be at least 35. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we have restrictions. I, I'm actually, I have to admit, I'm not sure if there's a restriction on. Probably not parliamentary system. You Here, can, no, I don't believe so. No, there, there, there couldn't be because, you know, if you're elected as a representative of a party and the prime minister is the, you know, maybe there's mm-hmm. a restriction on. I don't, I don't think there is an age yeah. minimum. Yeah. But, I, you know, if there were one, it's something that I would view as perfectly uh, subscribing to an age minimum. Right. It's something that I was perfectly compatible with saying that the minimum for voting ought to be a lot lower uh, than than what it is now. So 
So to, to sum up a sort of long-winded answer, I am a gradualist in the sense that I think that if you look at different domains of human activity, it's not the case that there's one age threshold right. that fits for all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to be quite contextual in the way that we think about, uh, you know, if we are using age as a, as a proxy, um, that, you know, what age makes sense for what area of activity. But I think once we decide that, uh, you know, my arguments are good, you know, which I hope... Uh, uh, will over over time carry the day, um, then I think that uh, there's a principle of political equality that really militates for just having an entire vote. You know, there's a, there's an idea um, that uh, um, that we owe to John Stuart Mill in um, in uh, representative government, um, where he says, well, you know, Mill was a great feminist. He uh, argued for the franchise franchise well before a lot of yeah. other more, you know, supposedly enlightened and progressive thinkers did. But he had this uh, view that um, there ought to be, everybody ought to vote, but some people's votes ought to count for more. Right. So the educated classes uh, should get a weighted vote, mm -hmm. right? Now, uh, again, consequentially, that might not be a bad idea. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, but it's a horrible idea from the point of view of the symbolism, right? right. Which is that, uh, you know, if you admit someone to citizenship, and you decide that they've passed whatever categorical set of uh, criteria need to be in place in order to say that uh, you're a citizen, you get to have an equal voice in uh, determining the course of our um, polities, um, you know, uh, policies, uh, then you should have an equal voice. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 pr the proposal, uh, the, the one, you know, getting one seventh of a vote at 12 and getting a full vote by the time you turn 18 is a proposal uh, by a very good friend of mine, who's someone who I see as an ally in this area, uh, Andrew Rehfeld. Um, but I think that there's, if anything, more of a kind of a pragmatic reason to uh, maybe think about, well, you know, if, if this is a way that we could get the idea across to a broader population who might view the whole idea of 12-year-old, mm -hmm. 13-year-old, 14-year-olds voting mm -hmm. as shocking, maybe this would be a way of sort of habituating them to it. But I don't think that on the foundations, um, it, it, I, would, I would argue against it. I would argue that... Uh, you know, if we have accepted that someone is a voter, then mm -hmm. they should be an equal voter. Because again, the history of arguments in political philosophy that have suggested um, dif differential voting schemes right. are, are, you know, are just a way of introducing inequality into mm -hmm. what is, at the end of the day, the most fundamental indicator of equality, which is the fact that for all of our class differences, uh, differences, regional differences, city, urban, whatever, mm -hmm. we all get, you know, one person, one vote. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And I just want to crystallize something, though, um, Daniel, though. So it's, it's not that you don't think, for example, um, that the voting age or a line shouldn't be drawn somewhere you just think that it's currently for wherever it is at the wrong place is that, is that a fair kind of summary it, it's it's way too high yeah mm -hmm. it's way too high um because I mean, there is a lower limit i'm assuming and perhaps in and, and let me just I, I shouldn't assume but i'm saying i'm, I'm paralleling this sort of thought here you, you already got on the train of thought yeah. that for instance um you know uh you know ch children for example uh, or folks at a certain age shouldn't be getting into contracts we could probably make the agree argument or sorry we could probably both agree here i should say that like you know someone at three years old right. probably literally doesn't know how right. to, how to right. get into corporate law so so you so know there's, there's a, a lower there's limit a, there's somewhere a, maybe. there's a british political philosopher who Sort of got me. So it's been a, it's been a bit of a bugbear for me for for years and years. And I've had I've had you know three three kids who uh, now you know they may not be representative kids. They're the kids of two academics, so they hear a lot of you know verbiage in their everyday lives. But you know I've, I remember having conversations with my kids when they were you know nine or ten years old, where I mm -hmm. think you know 
like, there's no reason for this person not to be able to have a say in the way that mm-hmm. uh, are, you know, the, the very sensible things that are coming out of their mouths and maybe some ideas and some truths that tend to get lost a little bit, you know, later in life when, you know, things get, that get more complicated. But, um, so, um, so there's there's a political philosopher called David Runciman who uh, who wrote a blog post about four or five years ago uh, where he suggested there should just be no limit, right? Hmm. If you could make it into the voting booth, uh, or maybe reading, maybe reading age was his lower limit. Okay, I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, so again, I think I think that um, I would uh, defend the view that there is a limit, but that it's a limit uh, which has to do just with the point at which children are capable of grasping the broad lines of the issues that separate different political parties, even at a fairly high level of generality, sufficiently that we're no longer in a position to say, oh, they are qualitatively inferior Mm. to adults taken as a class um, in order to be able uh, to vote. Now, there's a certain amount of um, kind of path dependency about when that uh when that occurs if we assume that people can't vote until they're 18 then we're going to treat them in certain ways until they're 18 right we're going to this whole age of majority business and you can't do this you can't do that until you're that age in particular we're going to educate them in uh in in particular ways right so you know schools will have things like uh, you know we we won't educate them on the assumption that they have right here and now to participate in the business of making political decisions for the polity. Mm-hmm. If we decided that 16-year-olds, um, so Austria, uh, of all places, I don't know why Austria, uh, in recent years, about 10 years ago, moved the voting age from 18 to 16, mm. right? So um, I'm sure that that's had an impact on the way in which uh, the Austrians think about the task of educating uh, their kids. So you know, I think that there's a natural um, – look – all the uh, religious traditions kind of have um, a rite of passage mm-hmm. uh, yep. sort of marker around, yep. you know, it corresponds with puberty, you know, 13, the mm-hmm. bar mitzvah, first uh, yeah. uh, confirmation in, um, in the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, th- I think that there's a kind of a, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I think there's a kind of very often in the pragmatic things that religions do, kind of a very pragmatic wisdom about um, oh this is an age at which things get different right yeah. uh, um, they're literally creating a demarcation point between when you are a child per se right. and someone right. entering that's adulthood right. and in Judaism which is the tradition that I know better you know uh, there are certain obligations that you just don't have like you know uh, before you are bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah mm-hmm. uh, and you get treated differently you are expected to fast at Yom Kippur you know because now you're Part of the, you know, and so I think there's... And what's a, interesting there too, sorry, just... Yeah, go, to, ahead, go ahead, But what's interesting there too is it kind of ties back to your point too is that um, a lot of this, whether it's in, in, the, in the Jewish tradition or other religions as well, when there's certain types of rites of passages as such, it's not just, okay, now you're an adult. It, it's, it's a bit more in a good way, and I think this is actually to your point, a broader and nuanced argument in the sense that a lot of these... Uh, religions and traditions recognize that that's not only when you can start doing something, but that's when you can actually start appreciating why you're doing it. And yeah, so on I think so that's forth. right. I mean, yeah, ex- I think that's that's a very that's a very good point. So you know, I think we have these rough and ready. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to be pinned down on you know twelve or you know like mm-hmm. uh, um, because I think again we don't know what a twelve year old would look like mm-hmm. if they lived in a society where mm-hmm. they were treated like someone who is. Mm-hmm. you know, expected to make a contribution. But we have these rough and ready distinctions, mm-hmm. which are common um, uh, amongst, you know, a, a lot of 
the big religious, spiritual, intellectual, moral traditions of the world. And that gives me a sense of where, you know, roughly the demarcation mm. line should be. Institutionally, in, you know, uh, it's the point at which you go from, say, primary school to high school. Right. Right. With, uh, and so you are, you know, when you, when you enter high school, all of a sudden you are in the same physical structure with people who are adults. And you get treated differently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the expectations about uh, how much responsibility you will take up change uh, almost from one year to the next. Right. You know, we Absolutely. all remember going from... So I think we already have it there in our... It's not like we have to think this from the ground zero, from the ground up, as if, you know, our traditions had not already done a lot of uh, collective thinking about it through the ages um so for me uh that kind of stuff when you know that those types of rites of passages and taking on more responsibility and so on and so forth that's been around longer than our modern conception of modern state and voting absolutely absolutely so so for me that's kind of you know the general area now if someone were to read my stuff and say oh my gosh you know weinstock is so right you know uh we have to immediately you know stop everything and immediately change the voting act and let I would not quibble about, you know, 13 versus 14 or for, you know, right. making a substantial and, you know, in the, in the, in the. And most people wouldn't, I would say, you no. know, like I think, yeah. like, you know, when the people can start driving when they're 16 here, for example, right. you know, there, I've met kids that honestly, they're probably responsible enough to deal with them. They're 13, 14, yeah, exactly. others, exactly. maybe not till 21, right. but most yeah. people wouldn't probably now, quibble about a year or two. In terms of, you know, political feasibility, which always has to be something that as political philosophers, we're at least a little bit attentive to, mm-hmm. you know, I think that 16 is the next big hmm. threshold. And again, it's a threshold that has been. Um, uh, you know, uh, reached by at least one. So one uh, sovereign country, Austria, decided to lower the voting age to 16. As far as I know, the sky still, you know, it's still... Austria's still on the map, right? Austria's still on the map. It hasn't suffered, uh, uh, you know, huge economic or political, uh, uh, you know, bad consequences from having lowered the age to 16. Scotland, which is not a sovereign country, um, I think for... Don't don't ask me for the detail, but I think that uh, Scottish voters can uh, uh, can vote for um, most or all, uh, but they can't vote in UK elections, right? Right. So, but I think in Scotland they can vote to sixteen. So they're already um, we're moving in that direction, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so I think that realistically, you know, that's the that's the next plausible threshold. But it's one that um, I actually feel, you know, I think at this point. The fact that 16, 17-year-olds, you know, go to a, a end of high school or here we have a thing called SEJEP, which is kind of like junior college, yep. college for, for you guys, and have a conversation with, uh, you know, a class full of people. As a philosopher, you know, I, saw, I often get invited to, you know, come and talk to this high school class or come and talk to this, uh, you know, SEJEP class. And for me, it just is stunning, you know. And the only thing that... that the only thing that justifies or that can explain the fact that we don't see this as a scandal is that we're just so used to it, right? We're just so used to the idea that 18 is a sort of magic number. But, you know, I am both as a father, but also as someone who goes around a lot to talk to, um, to, to, you know, young, young people who are 16, 17, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually shocking mm-hmm. that these articulate, uh, sometimes, you know, um, 
just as unreasonable as we are, but you know that that there doesn't seem to be any magical line that they are short of oh, yeah. that would justify. And to be fair, other aspects of the system recognize that, like you know, driving at sixteen. Yeah. Uh, you know, a judge is going to take an emancipation case if you bring it to them sure. uh, seriously if you're fifteen yeah. or sixteen, but not necessarily maybe six. Yeah. Like I want to leave home, you know. Yeah. So like I think there's there's a lot of other areas of the system that recognize that fifteen, sixteen year old threshold at least yeah. for many areas. So I, I think realistically that that's where Hunt, hunting. That's a responsibility. Absolutely. I mean, you can do lots of things around yeah. these ages, right? Yeah. So I think that realistically, you know, the move to 16 is one where um, the, is, it's the next plausible move. Hmm. Um, there's, a private, there's a private member's bill before Parliament in Canada by uh, the third party in, in Parliament, which will go nowhere, uh, which will go nowhere. Um, but I think that arguments like the ones that I put forward are designed to kind of Try to make people realize just the oddity, mm. right? Mm-hmm. The non-naturalness, first of all, of this 18-year-old threshold. It's it's not somehow written into our DNA. And just the oddity of the fact that we um, exclude people um, who whatever criterion we choose to um, raise as one that qualifies mm-hmm. for voting is met as regularly or is not regularly by you know, adolescents in that age group as it is by adults. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And, and with that, I mean, we've talked about a bunch of the things I want to cover and our time has pretty much wound down okay. here. And that's not a bad thing. So I'm going to move us to our promo wrap-up, Daniel. So sure. in, in each episode, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word to bring everything full circle and put a finer point in our exploration of the question. So I'm going to ask you what is sort of our, our formal last question to every guest that we do, which is, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether adolescents or more broadly young people should vote? In other words, if you want someone to leave listening to us here today with just one, two, or a few takeaways, if anything, yeah. what, what would you like to leave them with? It's the idea that um, we owe everybody that we exclude from the vote a justification for why they don't get to vote. In some cases, uh, foreign, you know, I'd be willing to accept that... Uh, you know, people who aren't citizens are owed that explanation, but can be provided with an explanation. But we just are not able to provide that um, explanation for adolescents. And to the extent that we can't, then we ought to reform our practices with respect to the vote as a matter of quite significant moral urgency. Hmm. I think that's a great place to leave it. So, Daniel Weinstock, thank you very much for yeah, joining me on the Curious Talk today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.